Well, it's great to see you all, cold as it is. But if you grew up in Chicago, this is not cold, is it? I mean, I remember winters like this, even worse. So this is just a good old-fashioned Chicago winter. And we're tough, right? We're Midwesterners. We'll get through it. In fact, bring it on. This is all you got. Bring it on. There is a worldwide conspiracy that's been going on since Adam and Eve first left or were asked to leave the Garden of Eden. And here's what the conspiracy is all about. The conspiracy is all about suppressing the truth of God. That's what Romans 1.18 says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is that truth that is suppressed? Well, four thoughts. Number one, the first truth, and this is the hard one for people, God's standard for us is perfection. Perfection. John the Apostle says, if you violate one of God's laws, just one, you're guilty of all of them. Why is that? Because you're not sinning against a finite person. You're not sinning against a human being. You're sinning against a perfect, infinite God. And one sin against an infinite God means that you have sinned infinitely. And, and the chasm beneath your feet is much deeper. It's actually endless. You can't fill it up with your own buckets of righteousness. As a result of that, number two, this is the one that is also suppressed. We're damned, and we're under the wrath of God. We're damned. That's, that's what Romans 1 says. Sometimes people say, you know, when there's a tsunami or some terrible thing happens, they'll say, is this God's wrath? <laughs> it's like, you don't understand. We are continually under the wrath of God. We're under God's wrath. And we don't like that, by the way. Because, because what will send most people to an eternity without God is this statement. You know, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. Number three, and, and this one really sticks in the craw of human beings. There's nothing we can do about it. There is absolutely... You know, I, I talk to people, and, and most of them will admit at some point, you know, I'm not what I'm supposed to be. 
What they never want to hear is they're not what they're supposed to be, and there's nothing they can do about it. And then number four, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. I think part of our problem in our gospel presentation is we don't tell people why they need a Savior. And so they think, I don't need a Savior. What do I need a Savior for? As we looked at Romans 1 through 3, <laughs> we started in chapter 1, verse 18. 1, 18 through 30, verse 32 talks about one kind of lifestyle. And, and it's an expression of suppressing the truth. And here's what that lifestyle is. It's a rebellious lifestyle. It's a rebellious lifestyle. It's I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I always think, I always think rebels are rebels because they want to be cool. You know, it's like, it's like the rebels are cool. And so they've, they've kind of marked out this identity for themselves. You know, I, I was a f- child of the 60s, so, you know, the, I watched the British invasion come along, and, and there were all these nice British rock groups. Not really, but that's how they presented themselves. And then all of a sudden, this group called the Rolling Stones came out. And you know what they were? They were the bad boys. Some of you are smiling because you can remember this. Some of you are saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. But, but the rebels, you know, it's, it's, it's I want to do what I want to do. I don't need a savior. I just want to have fun. And, and that kind of lifestyle suppresses the truth. All these things that we've just said. The second kind of lifestyle is the moralistic lifestyle. And that's that person, you know, who feels like they're better than everybody else. They feel superior. They judge other people. And and basically what Paul said to them is, you know, the, the judgment you're using to judge other people, you don't even keep that yourself. So your own set of rules... Your own conscience is going to condemn you. And then the third lifestyle, Paul saves the vitriol for last. It's the religious lifestyle. It's, you know, in Paul's day, it was was the Judeans. It was the people of Jerusalem. We have God's word. We are circumcised. We were chosen by God. Today, you know, it's Baptists and Catholics and Mormons and Muslims. It's Methabaptist Presbogationalists. You know, it's any religious tradition that you've allowed yourself to lay claim to and to stake your future on. Even though, here's what Paul says, even though there are three different kinds of people and three different kinds of lifestyles, they're all driven by the same thing. 
they want to feel good about themselves. <laughs> That's what I've discovered about people. Everybody, you know what drives all of us? What drives all of us is we want to feel good about ourselves. They want to like themselves. They want to approve of themselves. Even the rebels. Yeah, but I'm cool. Don't you understand? I'm cool. They want to know. Here's, here's what we're all after. This is, this is the search of every person on this planet. Whether you're rebel, moralist, Religious, we all want to know we have value and worth. That's what we want. In a very honest interview in Vogue magazine, Madonna, Madonna revealed what drives her. Here's what she said. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover as myself as a special human being. I feel good about myself. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, my struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that, that every human being swings on a pendulum. And the pendulum swings one way, and we accuse ourselves. And then it swings back the other way, and we excuse ourselves. And our days are filled with being on that pendulum. That's the problem with our ego. We are trying as human beings to do something that is impossible for us to do. Soren Kierkegaard, in Sickness Unto Death, listen to what he says. It's the normal state, <laughs> so it's a normal state, of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God. See, here's what every human being knows. If they will really be honest, here's what they'll say. There's an emptiness inside of me. I don't always feel it, but it's always there. That's the normal state. And, and so what we're trying to do with this emptiness is fill it up. And we may express it with different lifestyles. We may be even morally virtuous, but the reason that we often are morally virtu virtuous is not for God's glory, but because of fear or pride or some, some desire for power. This is pride. This, this kind of thinking that Kierkegaard talks about 
to try to fill up your identity with something besides God. Here's what that is. Pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. But here's what Paul does. After, after talking about each group separately, you know what he does? He collapses all three groups into one. In Romans 3, chapter 3, verses 10 through 20, he sums up his analysis. I'm not going to read through it. Go ahead and put it up there. You can see what it says. It's, it's, it is definitely an indictment. Put as much up as, as you want. But here's, I'm going to sum it up with, with four nuns and three alts. Because in there it says none four times, and it says all three times. So let me sum it up. Here's what he says. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who do absolute good, not even one. All have turned aside. All the world is accountable to God. All have sinned. You know what that means? Here's what it means to me. (laughs) It means if there is none righteous, no, not one, I'm not righteous. If there's none who understands, then I don't understand. If there's none that seeks for God, then I don't seek for God. If there is none who do absolute good, then I don't do absolute good. This is God's indictment. Why does he do it? Does he do it to blast us? I mean, is he, is he just, is, are these just lightning bolts that he's throwing down at us and saying, I want you to feel bad? That's not what he's doing. One of the things you have to realize, the person who's writing this was in the deepest slumber of all. He was comatose. He was comatose in his religion. This is Paul writing. And here's what, here's what he came to realize. God had to wake me up. I had to meet Jesus personally, and he had to knock me off my horse and make me go blind for three days. This is God's indictment to wake people from their spiritual pride and slumber. Now, <laughs> you're all like this right now. And I get it. Because that's pretty tough stuff to take. And at this point, if you're reading through Romans, you might just throw up your hands and say, Paul, (laughs) is it absolutely hopeless? What's What's funny to me, if you study philosophy, existentialism, you know what existentialism teaches? That this life is all there is, and essentially, we're all damned. We're in the universe all by ourselves, and we're damned. Christianity says the same thing. Nobody ever criticizes existentialism. Even though the conclusion is the same. The reason they don't is because in existentialism, the philosopher says, it's not really your fault. This is just, this is just the way you were born. Christianity says, no, it is your fault. <laughs> and here's why it's your fault. Because you're a rebel. 
You might be a moralist or a religious person, but all of you are rebels. You've all turned away from God. So it was your choice. You're in this situation because this is where you chose to be. And so you might be asking yourself the question, okay, is it hopeless? You know what? In Romans 3, 21, Paul finally gets to the good, good news. He gets to the good, good news. And, and these are... This, these six verses, 21 through 26, if you had six verses, if you were going to be stranded on a desert island and you could only take six verses, these are the six verses you'd want to take. Donald Gray Barnhouse, in his Bible, today's Valentine's Day. You know what Donald Gray Barnhouse did in his Bible? He drew a heart around these six verses. Because these are amazing, wonderful, powerful verses. Ray Steadman says, the best two words in the book of Romans are, but now. (laughs) But now. You're all under God's wrath. You all need a Savior. You're never going to live up to the standard that God has. But now. Now listen to these wonderful words. But now the righteousness of God, don't read behavior there. That's a huge mistake. If you're going to read anything, read God's desire for you. The identity that you were supposed to have. The lengths that God has gone to, to bring you back to himself. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What does that mean? In other words, the righteousness we're talking about doesn't come from you keeping the law. The law was not given for you to keep it because (laughs) that would be asking you to stand in the middle of the floor and touch the ceiling. No no matter how high you can jump, none of you can do it. It's an impossibility. The law was given to you to show you that you can't keep the law. It's apart from the law. It's a gift. And then he goes on to say, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Do you know that this good news, this righteousness, this gospel that we're talking about, It came from the Old Testament. That's the Bible that Paul had. You know where Paul got the gospel from? He got it from Isaiah. He got it from Psalms. Those verses, Romans 3, 10 through 20, those are quotes from the Old Testament. Specifically, Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. And then, I always think the best definition of the current state that we're in is Isaiah 53. Each of us has gone his own way. So he says, this doesn't happen because of the law. The law simply is a mirror to show you that you need this. But 
the law and the prophets, they testify of it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We're going to talk about faith next week. What faith really is. See, I think righteousness is misunderstood. I think gospel is misunderstood. And I think faith is misunderstood. In, in their true definition. And then it says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then it qualifies it for all who believe. If you, if you truly believe by faith the promise of God that D- Jesus died for you so that he might transfer his righteousness to you, if you really believe that by faith and you're banking on it and you're not banking on anything else, then he says, for there's no distinction. That's the, that's the point he's been making is doesn't matter if you're Jewish, doesn't matter if you're Gentile. There's no distinction. This gospel is for everybody. This righteousness is for everybody. And then, he, and then because he knows how prone we are to go back to our own way, after he has summed up our condition, he tells us one more time in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the problem. I have fallen short of what God intended for me to be. And everybody else is in the same boat. Listen, you seem like nice people. (laughs) My neighbor's a good guy. I hear all the time, you know, I'll be talking to somebody and we'll be talking about a person and they'll say, yeah, he's a really good guy. Well, that's as we see them. See, this view is how God sees us. This is is God's analysis of us. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption simply means buyback. You know what Jesus did? He bought back a whole group of people that wanted to go their own way. He bought us back. That's what it means to redeem. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. I wish I had time to get into there. Long theological word. Here's what it means. It means that you owed a debt you couldn't pay. Christ paid it. And God is satisfied with it. And not only is he satisfied with it, it's not just a transaction. Because... Because of that propitiation, you are now in the family and his impulse is to love you deeply. He's satisfied and now he is free to express all the love that he has for you as a father. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, this is a sermon all by itself. Let me sum it up. The death of Jesus not only satisfied our guilt, it satisfied God's not punishing unbelievers before Jesus came. 
So, in, so, so how, how, how could God forgive David after he had committed adultery and had the woman he committed adultery, had her husband killed? How could God do that? Because, because Christ was coming. We look back and we believe by faith. The saints in the Old Testament looked forward and they believed by faith. And so people would say, how can God let David get away with that? Is God unjust? And Paul explains it here and he says, do you know why Jesus died? Because in times past, God was patient and loving and his forbearance was on display. And now that Christ has died, it's not just good for now and for everybody that's coming. It's good for everybody that came before. As I said before, I want to finish up now. As I said before, righteousness is a very misunderstood word. And because of that, the gospel suffers. I said to the kids this morning, we tend to think of it as behavior, but that's not how Paul uses it. I remember reading this the first time, and, and I was awestruck by it, because I grew up in a Baptist church, and in a Baptist church, you grow up learning how to behave. In the, in the South, they say it like this, I was raised right. And maybe you came from a Catholic background or some other background in which, you know, Righteousness for you was about right behavior. I remember reading Ray Stedman the first time on the book of Romans. And I'm just going to read for you what I read. He writes, the key word in this epistle is the word righteousness. Basically, this is something that we're all looking for, whether we know it or not, because righteousness is really self-worth. It's knowing yourself to be of value, to be approved, to be desired. It's a feeling of self-respect. Self-worth. Now, the gift of righteousness is exactly that. It is a gift from God. Romans teaches that the theme of the good news is that righteousness, this essential quality of human living, comes only as a gift of God. There's no other way to get it. You can try to get self-worth from what other people think of you, but as the Bible clearly helps us to see and as life will teach us, If we live long enough, that never really works. Why? Because we're all fickle. It's our new identity, which we have because we are in Christ. We are no longer in Adam. You know where most people get their (laughs) self-worth? They try to get it from other people. Did you ever go fishing for a compliment? I have. And I'm always disappointed. Like, the person won't cooperate at all. Because, you know why? Because they want the same thing I want. They want to feel good about themselves at all, as well. You know, Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and you should read it. There's a lot of pride and boasting going on there. And at one point, here's what he says to them. He says, you know, 
I have a very low opinion of what you think of me. But you know, you know what the trap is, right? If, if you don't like what other people think of you, you, you go to, you go to a, a counselor or a psychiatrist, you know what they'll say to you? Well, don't worry what other people think about you. It's what you think about yourself. Well, you can forget that. That's not going to work either. Like I said, that pendulum swings every day, and it swings wide. So here's what Paul says. He says, I, I have a low opinion of what you think about me, but I also have a low opinion of what I think about myself. As a matter of fact, here's what he says to young Timothy. He says, Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. <laughs> At one point, my career was like soaring. I was on my way to the top. I was surpassing all of my countrymen. I was advancing in Judaism beyond all my contemporaries. You know what I've discovered about myself? I'm the chief of sinners. But you know what? Even my verdict of me doesn't matter. You know what matters? I will glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my glory. My identity is so wrapped up in what God thinks of me through the righteousness of Jesus Christ that essentially what I think and what other people think doesn't matter. Tim Keller calls it, you know what he calls it? He calls it self-forgetfulness. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to be able to forget about yourself? That would free up a lot of brain space. Theologian William Barclay put it this way, the essential fact of Christianity is that God thought you were worth the sacrifice of his son. I will glory in the cross and in the cross alone. That's where I get my identity. That's the righteousness that God intended for me all along. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious gospel that we don't even understand. We think of it as a ticket to heaven, as a, as a get-out-of-hell card, or we think of it as somehow turning us into moralistic, moralistic people or religious people. Instead, Lord, you want to change our whole identity you want to transform us. We have a whole new root. And out of that root of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit works in us to transform us and to make us into the image of your Son. We love you, Lord. And we can't believe that you love us.
In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.